Welcome to My Marvellous Melbourne, a podcast on Melbourne's history with Professor Andy May and the Melbourne History Workshop. We're delighted to broadcast a virtual event from Melbourne's lockdown, an occasion that was hosted by the Australian Jewish Historical Society in conjunction with the Australian Jewish Genealogical Society and the Lamb Library. The guest speaker on this occasion is Melbourne History Workshop's own Dr. Sue Silberberg. Sue completed her PhD here in the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies and her book, A Networked Community, Jewish Melbourne in the 19th Century, has just been published by Melbourne University Press. After some introductory comments from Professor Bill Rubinstein, Sue is in discussion with Rabbi John Levi, whose own roots go back to the 19th century Victorian politician and businessman, Nathaniel Levi. The early period of Australian Jewish history is a fascinating one, and it's been interestingly covered in this important book. Um, it, there are certain features of Australian Jewish history in, in its earlier period, which sets it apart from other diaspora communities in uh, countries of new settlement. For one thing, most of the most of the uh, immigrants who came here in the 19th century were English-speaking Jews from Britain, and they were not uh, German speakers or Yiddish speakers. And secondly, uh, if I could just highlight this for one second, um, there was already an ethno-religious dispute here of some considerable importance between uh, Irish Catholics and British Protestants, to which the Jews were not a part and were sort of regarded as honorary Protestants. Now, I want to stop there and turn over to our speaker, the speakers. My first question, therefore, to you is, what's the meaning of the word network? Why did you choose that word? Thanks, John. I chose that word because I was actually responding to um, a lot of literature in uh, his, historical literature that looks at it networks within the British Empire. And it sees those networks as predominantly Protestant. Uh, there's occasional references to the Chinese community, but the, but the networks that are really explored are white and, and largely Protestant. And I wanted to draw attention to the fact that in fact, this was a community that was not only networked to itself and networked really widely amongst the Jewish world, but also contributed to the uh, networks that created colonial Australia and brought different networks than the ones that have often previously been explored in wider literature. So I thought network covered both internal and external forces working with this community. Were her communities in early Australia um, also networked or were we a unique community? Yes, there were lots of other network communities. I think what's interesting about this one is it brings, as I said, new networks. And those networks are both um, within the diaspora of traditional, what people traditionally see as the Jewish diaspora into Europe, but also um, a very a rapidly expanding English-speaking diaspora. And because these migrants or settlers came from places other than the British Empire, although in smaller numbers, they're also networked through the Sephardi world, through North Africa, through um, Turkey and places like that. And so their networks are quite wide and slightly different to other communities. Does our network 
mean a family network or just simply from from where we came from? No, no, I think the networks are, are multiplicitous. The one on the front cover is, is a networked family, but they're also, they're also networked um, politically. They're networked through communications, letters, journals. Um, they're, they're very aware of what's going on in other parts of the world. They're networked through newspapers and material that's being sent around the world and through their business connections. I mean, I like to use the example of your family, which has a, a scrapbook, which contains the minutes from synagogues in Birmingham and Liverpool, so that Nathaniel Levi is interested in what's going on back in those places. Someone like Emanuel Steinfeld is using his networks through Europe and his, his wider networks, because he travels all the time, to bring back political and economic ideas that are incorporated into government policy or or uh, used to establish the intercolonial trade conferences, things like that. And so they're using a whole range of networks to develop colonial society, and I believe to, to develop their perceptions of themselves in the Jewish world. How did they perceive themselves within the Jewish world? As lucky, exiled, set upon? How did they see themselves? I think they saw themselves as well, I presume lucky. Um, this is the first society where Jews came with first settlement, as your work has shown, and also to a place where there were fundamentally no restrictions on them. And so what they did was they were quite assertive in their, their pronouncements of being Jewish and, and, and arguing that as Jews they had every right to be treated as equals in society. And largely the wider society responded to that and, and, and supported their uh, arguments for inclusion or, or where they push back on policy and things like that. So I think they were able to really use this society to both create a Jewish world that reflected them, largely as Anglo-Jews, and to help shape this colonial society that they were there at the formation of to reflect their values and respect their values. So if you, want to give me, if you want me to give you an example, for example, with the debates in the 1867 uh, Royal Commission into Education and the subsequent 1872 Education Acts, Jews are arguing for free and secular education because they're saying morality is a universal principle and sectarianism shouldn't be tolerated. And if people want to have a religious education, that's their right but the state shouldn't be imposing it upon anybody. And for everyone to be treated equally, you know, it needs to be a free and secular education. So we ended up sending our kids to Scotch College. We sent our children to a number of schools. Education isn't compulsory till the 1870s. Um, and even after that, particularly women weren't necessarily being sent to school, they were having governesses. I mean right up till my grandmother had a governess, she never went to school. But people went to a variety of schools that offered a variety of things. These people saw themselves as part of the community and they saw themselves as Jewish. So there were a number of attempts um, at Jewish schools and then a number of schools taught Hebrew and Jewish subjects. So there were private Jewish schools. So Julia Farmer had a school in Fitzroy for educating young ladies of the Jewish persuasion. Um, Scotch College taught Hebrew for a number of years. Um, places like Wesley and Melbourne Grammar advertised very widely in the Jewish press. 
and um, Hebrew teachers were in places um, in other private schools and colleges in Melbourne. And then families made a big effort to have private Jewish tutors coming to their schools. But if you look at the way the synagogues are established, they're often established first as, as educational establishments and then as synagogues. So Walter Lindenthal, who's employed in the 1840s for the Melbourne Hebrew Congregation, is employed as a teacher and reader. And the same with the establishment of St Kilda Hebrew Congregation, they establish a school and synagogue. And so the educational component is always really important. And the other complication is the way the acts that governed uh, education in Victoria changed. And so the attempts, particularly through the Melbourne Hebrew Congregation to establish a school, were a bit of a sort of push and pull as the Education Acts changed and demanded different things of schools. So it's not quite as simple as saying these people chose to send their children to non-Jewish schools. It's, 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 a, it's a complicated issue, I'd say, but they were really struggling to give their children a Jewish education in one form or other. What did they do with the children of mixed couples? Because that was a major problem, wasn't it? That's, that is the major preoccupation, I would say, other than making sure food's kosher, um, of 19th century Jewry. The issue is really complex because until the 20th century, there were far more Jewish men in Victoria than there were Jewish women. And for most of the 19th century, it was two Jewish men for every Jewish woman. So it's, again, not a simple issue of saying these people weren't marrying Jews, that there weren't any Jewish women for them to marry. So they took a very strict and sometimes pragmatic approach to what to do. In the 1840s and 50s, they were struggling about whether or not they could circumcise the children of um, non-Jewish mothers, and it went a bit to and fro. Um, and then at one point they said, well, there's nothing to stop them being circumcised, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're Jewish. It wasn't until the 1860s that it was considered um, Melbourne had sufficient people with rabbinic knowledge to establish a Beth Din. So once the Beth Din was established, there was attempts at formalising the process for conversion. But when you read the letters that were written to the chief rabbi where families asking to convert their wives or children, they really stress how much effort they're putting into giving them a Jewish education and observing Jewish customs. So I think, again, they are really trying to, to manage Jewish continuity in one form or another. So, for example, there's a really good example in my book of someone called Jacob Hart, who in 1869 tries to get his wife and family converted. No, he dies in 1869, I'm sorry. And when he dies, the papers are full of praise. This is the man who was running the Hevra Kedisha in Melbourne. And, the, and the, the papers are full of praise for how he was a central pillar of the Jewish community. And in fact, they set up a subscription. His wife had already predeceased him. They set up the subscription to support his children. So people could be really a part of the Jewish community and still have not managed to find a Jewish wife. Yes, I wonder how many thousands of Victorians there are who are product of the chief rabbi's obduracy. Anyway, how did the Jews... I have to say, John, that I, when reading the, the, the letters I've read, and, I, and I've read many of them, I haven't found anyone who has refused conversion. Now, because of the, um, some of the complications of access to those records, I haven't read the 8,000 pages of them. I've read a lot of them. But it seems that they were saying, 
we don't want to convert, but they were being pragmatic and saying, well, if you go through these processes, we will in the 18, from the 1860s when the Bethlehem was established. Uh, I'd like to change the subject a bit, but you, you've raised so many interesting questions by your answer. I'm tempted to go on, but I think, I think that the whole picture that you're painting is much wider than that. What happened when the Germans turned up? Did, did it make a difference to the way in which the community, the Central Europeans? Well, I think the Central Europeans are two, two lots. The slightly more majority are people from the German territories and then the slightly lesser, the third, the third greatest number are people from the Russian Empire. Um, but they're still very, very, very small numbers. We're talking, you know, 300, to, you know, 250, 300 people. Most of the Germans have lived in Britain previously. So that might mean they've come to England as children, like the um, Levinsons or the Jacobs families that I'm descended from. So they will come up in the records as being Prussian, but in fact, they've been in England since they were very small children. So are they German or England? English? The people like Maritz Michaelis had spent 10 years in, um, in England prior to coming to Australia. Emanuel Steinfeld has spent a long time in England. So I think you'll find most of the Germans had come by England in the first instance. So I think their perception of the world is probably tainted by that and they're choosing to go from England to a British colony. What's interesting in Australia is people do not marry uh, people, they very rarely marry people from the same place and they don't form any, any associations that reflect their place of birth. So, there's, so the Germans will, many of them do form the German, do join the German association, but the German association is both Jewish and non-Jewish Germans, not Jewish or Germans or either. If you read what Emanuel Steinfeld says, he says very loudly and clearly that he is an Australian and he is British and things like that. Yes, but he also says how much he appreciates going back to Germany. I to see what's going on, and yeah. he does argue for a German form of um, tax, mm. you know, tax unification. Right. That's fascinating. So the the thing that really knocked me off my seat was really your emphasis on the Sephardi group. I, I knew that there was Sephardium in early colonial Australia, of course, but I had no idea that there were so many. Can you tell us a little bit about the background of the the Sephardim, especially the Caribbeans. Yeah, well, so there are sort of three groups of Sephardim. There are the Sephardim from London, and there are Sephardim from the Caribbean, as you said, and then there are odd Sephardim from North Africa and, and um, Turkey, but very, very small numbers. So the Sephardim from London are coming as other settlers, either under sentence or... Um, or as free settlers, or as parts of chain migration. So the Ottolenghi family start coming out because of a, 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 a convict, but you know, spend 50 years and they all come out as a chain migration. The ones that people are really interested in is the ones from the Caribbean who predominantly come from Jamaica. I'm particularly interested in this group. Jamaica was really under the control of the Columbus family and therefore it was outside the Inquisition. So Jews, while it was under Spanish control, did live in Jamaica, but they couldn't practice openly. But there are references to them in the 16th century and things. When the British took over Jamaica in the 1650s, they expelled the Spanish, but they allowed the Jews to stay 
because they called them Portuguese. And at that point, the Jewish community was able to sort of come out into the open. And the first synagogues were built in the very early 18th century. Interestingly, the Sephardi community, I believe, had a greater life expectancy than other Europeans. And so it did slightly better. But in Jamaica, there were Jews were very quite not very well treated. They were disenfranchised and they were very heavily taxed. And those enfranchisement didn't uh, wasn't resolved till after slavery was abolished because um, they couldn't have a white population being treated worse than a black population, and that's when Jews were enfranchised. So the Jews that come to Melbourne obviously come after the abolition of slavery, but I have been able to track back and they are all the children. They obviously, most of those don't, aren't old enough to have been slave owners, but their parents were certainly all slave owners. And so from the 1850s to about the 1870s, the Melbourne Hebrew congregation had a separate Sephardi minion. And I've seen references to Charles Dyte arguing that Ballarat should also have a Sephardi service. Really? And so, like in England, some of the prominent members of the community, like the Montefiores, were obviously members of the Sephardi community. And the Benjamins. Really? I didn't know that. I think the Benjamins are Sephardi, yeah. Hmm. Um, can I... Maybe wrong, but I think they might be. Can I shift the, the topic to a favourite topic of yours, and that's architecture. Place and um, the milieu and the role of Jews in creating and building and, and owning Melbourne, early Melbourne. Where would you like me to go? Start. <laughs> I could have written a book on this. I'm still contemplating doing oh, it. Oh, you practically did, yeah. I know. I only got a chapter in. The interesting thing about Jewish Melbourne is that Jews live where Melbourne develops. They don't live in any one particular area. There is no ghetto in Melbourne in any shape or form. But saying that, Jews choose to live in some very quaint little places. And there are some congregations of Jews in some obscure places. There's a sort of progression through a number of particularly interesting buildings. There is a street that runs between Nicholson and Brunswick Street, the bottom of the museum, called King William Street. King William Street's built in the 18, uh, subdivided, it's it sold in the first, in land sales in the 1830s, it's subdivided in the 1850s into little, and little wooden houses are being built there. In the 1860s, they get demolished and um, stone and brick houses get built. And that street has some very interesting connections with our other speaker here, because there's a number of interconnected families that live in that street. And that's a really common pattern of the Jewish community, that they live near their relatives. So there's a number of people in this street called Levi or Levi, some of whom I've been able to connect together and some of whom I can't. But one of them is John's ancestors, who live in a row of houses on the south side of the street. And also in the street is the family of uh, Solomon Phillips, who came here because he wanted to be the rabbi of the Melbourne Hebrew congregation. He came to Sydney as a sort of rabbinical figure. Didn't become, wasn't employed in that role, but his extended family lived there, including two of his daughters, one who was uh, Rosetta, who married Alexander Fox. And that's the street in which Emmanuel Phillips Fox was born in. There are two buildings on the corner of Glass Terrace, I presume most people know in um, Gertrude Street, and Hugh Glass built the building on the other corner of Gertrude and in Brunswick Street. And they were the homes of a number of Jewish families, um, including the interconnected families uh, involved in the, or the children of the families involved in the great gold dust 
robbery of the 1830s, the Caspers and their husbands, and a number of families would move from one sort of location to the other as they came up the social stratum. But the really interesting concentration of Jews is in East Melbourne. And Jews were um, really major purchases of, in the first land sales of East Melbourne, the majority of huge purchases of land with Jewish uh, investors. And Jews built, uh, lived on both sides of Victoria Parade, uh, where the hospital is and down from the Iron Ear Hospital. And those mansions that are still extant on that side of the road were all built by Jewish builders. And Albert Street also became a great centre of Jewish life. Obviously, the synagogue was there. So there are these interesting pockets and Kilda becomes an early area of Jewish life. Marcus Clark said very disparaging things about it. And then Jews live around Melbourne. So it's, uh, yeah. And they're using the most fashionable architects of the day to build their houses and their synagogues. Noam Barnett. Oh, Noam Barnett's a bit later. He's, he's, he's a Jewish architect. Yeah. Uh, pre, prior to that, they're using the non-Jewish fashionable architects. But yes, Noam Barnett built houses for a number of Jewish landowners and also built their factories. He claimed to have built a house in every street in Melbourne or built a building in every street in Melbourne. And grew up in Melbourne. And grew up in Melbourne, went to Scotch College and, and was a great advocate for things. I mean, he was a huge letter writer. So he's writing to the paper on architecture and on Jewish issues and on education and on all sorts of things. And buildings built, built the latest iteration of the Melbourne Hebrew Congregation in Turek, or designed it, I mean. Yeah. Yes. So when did the Jews actually leave the city? Well, they leave the city as people leave the city. Um, they often, you know, they live above their businesses and that goes on right through the 19th century. It's as the suburbs develop, people move out to the suburbs and, and you can just track the Jews moving out. You know, by the late 19th century, they're in Malvern. So they're, they're, they're moving with everybody else. So they're not, you know, people live above their shops in the 19th century and they live in porous, you know, the back alleyways and laneways if they're very poor and they live in the major thoroughfares if they're not. And, and as I said, they move out as, as the city develops. And final question before I think we throw it open to everybody, the parliamentarians, the number of Jews in the state, in the colonies parliament. Uh, can you give us some background on that? Yeah, I think this is a really fascinating issue. And I think Jews, and it shows how the, how, what the position Jews had. And I think it's about you know, this, this, this position of confidence I think they had, so that as soon as there's any form of representative government, Jews are, and, and in New South Wales, Victoria, wherever, Jews are standing for election. And they're standing for election from the 1840s for the Melbourne City Council. Your ancestor, Nathaniel Levi, is the first Jew to, to, uh, to, to be elected to Parliament, and as he starts my book. He, he stands for, he, he takes his seat in Parliament wearing a yarmulke and reading from a, an Old Testament, you know, taking his oath on an Old Testament. Uh, when Benjamin Benjamin is elected Lord Mayor of Melbourne, he has a function for, I can't remember if it was a thousand people or several hundred people, and he has kosher catering. You know, they're not, and, and people are members of Parliament, they're members of local councils. The other interesting thing is they're, they're, they're honorary consuls and they're often honorary consuls in, for countries that as Jews they wouldn't be allowed to hold civic office in or from people like um, Solomon Ifla who came from Jamaica. He came from a country where he'd been disenfranchised and he becomes mayor of South Melbourne. And I think that's 
again, the international perspective these people bring. So someone like Alexander Marx, who traded in Japan for 40 years, um, had a trading uh, and lived in Japan and off, on and off for that period of time, becomes the consul for Japan and argues very publicly against the white Australia policy. That sounds a very interesting person to study. I really would like the people, I, I would like everybody to have a chance to, to join in this and ask questions. And Phil's asked, would you say something about Benvenuto? Oh, Benvenuto is a magnificent building. Well, the, well, I didn't talk about the bottom end of Drummond Street. The bottom end of Drummond Street nearest Victoria Parade is absolutely a Jewish enclave. So on the east side of the road, you have two mansions next to each other. Benvenuta, Leah Solomon built it. She was the uh, daughter-in-law of someone from the Great Train robbery. Great Goldust robbery, I mean, sorry, wrong century. And um, she built that house that's now named Medley Hall and run by the University of Melbourne. And next to it is Rosaville, which was built by another family, a really beautiful little mannerist house. Across the road are a number of terraces. Melburnia Terrace was built by Wolf Davis. And then going up the hill towards the university, most of those houses were built by a number of Jewish developers or, or owner occupiers. So that end of Drummond Street was really a Jewish enclave. Yeah, just a comment about the Melburnia Terrace, which is absolutely magnificent. It's never been given the, uh, I suppose, the, the publicity within the community that it deserves. And Wolf Davis built seven of them. And the first was where he and his wife lived. And they had a sukkah upstairs on the roof, which is still there. And down below was a stone-faced uh, mikvah. They had their own private mikvah, which he needed because he had six daughters. And as each daughter got married, he would hand them over one of the houses. And it's the most extraordinary episode. Uh, well, they inherited write. the houses when he died. What's interesting about um, the Jewish community and their wills is that they very rarely prioritise one child. They will sometimes write out a child from a will if they didn't marry someone who was Jewish. And they will quite often say, if my children don't marry someone who's Jewish, they don't inherit. Um, but they very rarely, in fact, I was looking at a will yesterday um, that did only leave to one child and didn't leave to the wife. That was the first one I think I've come across. And often they will protect, even before the Married Women's Act, they will really try and put wording in that protects any inheritance that women have and keep it free from their husbands. As East Melbourne was originally laid out, it set aside, sets aside land for all the various religious denominations for churches. And then Bishop's Court's built, which gives it absolutely, you know, great cachet. And if you think about it, you've got St Pat's Cathedral and you've got Parliament. And where does the East Melbourne Hebrew Congregation choose to move itself in the 1870s? Right here, which is mm. the sort of absolute religious and political place of power in Melbourne. And I think it's a really public statement. They build, they use the most fashionable architects, Crouch and Wilson, they build these sort of Renaissance palace with mansard roof. But what do they do? They put its name in Hebrew across the front of it. And that's the first time a building in Melbourne, as I can identify, that's had a Hebrew across the front. And it's, and it's plonked right here in this absolute position of religious and political power in Melbourne. And I think that's a really interesting statement in itself. Mm. I saw that somebody asked a question about anti-Semitism. I've come across very little anti-Semitism. What about Marcus Clark, for example? 
he has made he did make anti-Semitic remarks, but generally when there are debates about things in the paper that Jews are agitating for, so for example, opening shops on Sundays, um, people or, or secular education, people will write in and say, yes, it is disenfranchising Jews that they have to close their shops on a Saturday, but they can't trade on a Sunday and that's really unfair and they're paying their taxes and they're law-abiding people and they're really philanthropic. So people are actually very positive. And I mean, as early as 1856, the Argus is printing ads with Hebrew font. Now, for them to have ads with Hebrew font, they have to have had, you know, it's hot metal printing. So they have to have the Hebrew font. And so, you know, Jews of, you know, in 1856, you've got ads for matzah with matzah written in Hebrew. So I think that's, that's you know, showing an integrated position. I'd like to make two comments. One was, I think you mentioned six synagogues, did you? There was the Burke Street. There was the Russell Street one, which is now a restaurant. There's the East Melbourne one. And which were the other ones at that time? There was St Kilda, Ballarat. There was St Kilda, Melbourne Hebrew Congregation in East Melbourne in Melbourne. And then there was Geelong, Bendigo and Ballarat. Three in Melbourne. And my grandfather went to the Burke Street Synagogue. He was a, a choir boy in the 1880s and he had his education there, which was, of course, Jewish until the mitzvah. And then his father said to he and his uh, other brother siblings, it's off to work. Um, you're now a man and that's what you did. And it wasn't until the next generation, until several of them, including Wolf Davis, took up um, tertiary education and uh, in various um, areas. So uh, I'm very interested in the Jewish Board of Advice, which I believe was the precursor to the Beth Din and how it was able to work either with the Chief Rabbi in London or by itself. Do you mean the board that was set up to look at conversions? Yes. Yeah. It, it wasn't prior to the Beth Din. It was parallel to the Beth Din and it was set up so that um, before letters went to the, uh, the chief rabbi in London for uh, applications for conversion, it had, the, the applicant had to have been agreed to by this joint committee of the three Melbourne synagogues. And it didn't always work and it broke down and it was reconfigured and, you know, they bickered. And, but that was the process. The process was supposed to be someone applied, they went to this joint committee then it went to the chief rabbi, then the chief rabbi sent it back, and then they were went through a conversion process. So the Beth Din itself didn't, didn't perform, can, didn't... Uh, yeah, but the Beth Din was responsible for the conversion, yeah. And, and they built a mikvah, of course, in the public baths. Yeah, there was a mikvah yeah. in the public baths, yeah. Which is still there, yes. But, but, but I gather they didn't uh, do convert, they didn't adjudicate on conversions without going back to the chief rabbi, is that right? No, yeah, they had to, it, the, the community had to agree that this person could be, could be converted, then it went to the chief rabbi, then it came back, and then the Beth Din was responsible for the conversion. Freemasons, we haven't, yes. we haven't talked about them. Jews were very active in the Freemasonry, uh, Freemasonry was attractive because it was a both a social network. It it believed in a universal God. So and the symbols were not not considered to be anathema to Judaism, and it provided networks. And Jews were Freemasons all over the world. And there were lodges in Melbourne that were very predominantly Jewish um, and 
then there were Jews in other lodges. But yes, Jews were very, very active Freemasons. And then there were also a number of friendly societies that the Jew Jewish community created for itself, other than the philanthropic society. There was a Jewish aid society and things like that. So there were both attached to the, the English branch of the Freemasons and um, setting up their own friendly societies to support themselves. And I mean, the most impressive Freemasonry story I think I've got, or the one I use in the book, is actually the, cemetery, the, the, the funeral procession for Gabriel Marx and his wife, Marion Alexander. They drowned in a shipwreck in 1914. And the Marxes were very, very prominent politically and um, in trade in Fiji. Um, born in Melbourne, and um, and it's a very interesting story about Jews going out and colonising the Pacific. And after the uh, drowning of the of Gabriel Marx and his wife, the funeral procession from they drowned in Canada off Canada went back through Fiji, and there was a Masonic ceremony in Fiji before their co their coffins were boarded onto a boat for Melbourne to be to have a Jewish funeral in Melbourne. And all the shops came down, and flags were at half mast, and and, um, you know, it was a civic procession, a Masonic civic procession of, 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 over their coffins before, they, you know, they made this detour to Fiji before they came back to Melbourne. So Jews were very prominent and could be very prominent in the Freemasons. There were no state secondary schools in Victoria until 1905. So for anyone to go to a secondary school, it had to be a private school. And in fact, the Jewish schools that were established weren't, weren't secondary schools, they were all primary schools. So to get a secondary education, you had to go to Scotch or Melbourne Grammar or the other schools that are now non-existent. And Scotch College did in the 1870s teach Hebrew. Jews traditionally also went to Wesley and Melbourne Grammar, but they went to other places as well. It's just a lot of those schools no longer exist. How common was it for Jews to attend Catholic schools? I think Wesley. I know of some. Do you? In the 19th century? The 20th, but yes. On the 20th century, I know some went to um, Xavier. The Jesuits were supposed to give a good education, but I haven't come across any in the 19th century. My father and my uncle went to Xavier. They were made very welcome there by the brothers. And they had a very good schooling, a very good education. I think they wasted most of it. But they learned how to swim when the brothers threw them off the bridge at Hawthorne into the Yarra River. Jesuits thought one to swim. John Monash, of course, grew up in a German-speaking home in Melbourne. And went to Scotch. Yeah, and went to Scotch, that's right. So, and it, it, it was extraordinary, of course he was a genius, so he, he could read French and German and English before his bar mitzvah. How, how many German-speaking families do you think the Jewish community had in the 19th century? There are about 250 to 300 Germans in Melbourne and I've counted to date. I don't know how much they retained their German. I did was reading something um, about the Jacobs family. First generation, Philip Ackland Jacobs had written for his family. It's not dated, but he was born in the 1860s or 70s. And he talks about going to London and to his uncles where they said they're grace after meals in German, um, which was a bit odd because the uncle Lesser Jacobs had been born in Manchester and his wife was the daughter of an English convict. So it didn't quite make sense to me. I have letters from my family from Sheffield, the, the, the Prussian-born parents in Sheffield, to their children in, in Victoria, and those letters are all written in English. 
Mm. They have an odd, they have a bit of Hebrew if they're talking about a mezuzah or something that's written in Hebrew, and one letter has a, a few sentences in Yiddish at the end. But I, they certainly, you know, there were some very prominent Jews in Melbourne who are parts of the German Association. They saw themselves as German, but I think the whole concept of nationalism for Jews is, I think, quite complex. Jews are coming to Australia from Europe for the gold rush. And that is only as concepts of nationalism are really arising in those countries. You know, Germany, Germany isn't a country when those people are leaving. Although the 1848 revolutions are facilitating a certain level of emancipation across Europe for Jews, I think for most people coming from Central and Eastern Europe, their identity is Jewish. It's not German and it's not Polish and it's not Russian. Their identity is Jewish because that, particularly if they came from Eastern Europe, I think Germany is a slightly different kettle of fish, but if they're coming from further east into Europe, the way that communities were managed and controlled and politically and socially, that communities would have, the, the individuals would have seen themselves as Jewish. They wouldn't have seen themselves as Polish or Russian. And I've had long conversations with a number of academics in Central and Eastern Europe working on Jewish things. And that seems to be the consensus of views. So our concepts of nationalism arise from concepts of the nation state. And that's not really relevant to Germany, Poland or Russia at that point. And Zionism in Australia, 19th century? What's interesting in the 19th century is there's a very strong Anglo-Jewish association. And the Anglo-Jewish association is fighting and agitating for Jewish causes around the world. And then um, Zionism becomes one of those. Now, there's, you know, big debates about people not being Zionist and being Zionist. But I think the issue is about their perceptions of themselves in the world. Although I'm arguing these people feel confident, I think there's always an underlying feeling of slight inconfidence. And I think that plays into it. But there are certainly people I've come across, now. I can't think of the name, somebody who, you know, people are supporting charities in Jerusalem. There's somebody who set up a number of arms houses in Jerusalem. People are even travelling to Jerusalem. So there is a to and fro. I just don't think there's necessarily consensus on the issue. And remember, my research is really stopping at 1900. So yeah, that's very early. It's very early. The push and pull factors. I think the push and pull factors are interesting. I mean, obviously, the gold rush is an enormous pull factor. And it's a pull factor for people all over the world. But the thing to remember is it's a very expensive place to get to, be it the gold rush or anywhere else. So you have to have a certain level of um, income to afford to get here. And not only did you have to be able to pay for your fare, you had to pay for, you had to kick yourself out to get here. And you also had to um, lose several months' income while you're on the ship. So uh, there were really no uh, assisted passages for Jews because assisted passages were targeted at agricultural labourers and servants, which Jews didn't really fit that category. And so there was one little scheme with Carolyn Chisholm and the, and, and the ladies in London trying to send out 12 Jewish women, which is quite famous, but it isn't. And they do assist, uh, there is an immigration scheme to assist a few people, but it's, it's only a few hundred, it's not a significant number. So the push factors are largely the gold rush, but also this is a place, Jews are urban, 
and they are landless. And so this is a, an opportunity for people to uh, have another economic future and to, um, and to potentially own land, which you couldn't own, a, you know, they weren't going to own a house in London in the early, early part of the 19th century, unless they were very wealthy. And, you know, most houses were leasehold. So there are lots of reasons to come. And if you read the arguments about in the 1850s when they're very, very concerned about uh, the lack of Jewish females, they're, they're actually suggesting that rabbis should be standing in their pulpits in, in England and sort of agitating for female immigration because it's the land of the free and it's part of the British Empire and it doesn't have all those nasty things that are happening in America. So I think they're the, they're the push-pull factors. And, and, and it's a giant chain migration, really. You know, you get people who get off boats and promptly get married. You know, uh, you know, they're obviously being, you know, they're being arranged marriages. And I think you say the Jews didn't leave. Almost nobody goes back to Europe. There are exceptions. Largely people will go to England if they don't stay in Australia or to America some people move on to, or to and a lot of people go to New Zealand and come back again or stay. But the people who go to England aren't necessarily just English-born. They might be Australian-born. They might be German-born. So there, but there, there isn't a huge number of them. And they'll often be what's called colonial merchants or someone like the Telemann brothers who set up this meat processing works in Victoria and then take it to England and are, and are selling sort of processed meats that they can ship before refrigeration into Europe. They sell it to the French army and people like that. So they're, they're, they're using their Australian business connections to re-establish themselves in England. And I think, too, that you infer, if you're saying, that Jews didn't convert to Christianity. No, very rarely. So it's a great tribute to you, and your book is fascinating. Uh, I know history is often turned into his stories. Well, you have not done that. Yours is a really a look at a network that extended across the world and really uh, we were very lucky to be here. My Marvellous Melbourne is a production of the Melbourne History Workshop in the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies at the University of Melbourne, Australia. Our thanks to Gavin Nabar at the Hallwood Recording Studio, University of Melbourne, and Andrew Batterham for our theme music. You can find episode notes, further resources, and contact details at our website, mymarvelousmelbourne.net.au. We'd love to hear from you. <laughs>